Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan Show. I'm so delighted you could join us this week because we got Bob Gardner with us. Hi, Bob. Hey, guys. How's it going? Wonderful. Thanks. Bob is going to help us figure out how to live a life of happiness, joy, wonder, creativity, and amazing health. Right, Bob? As much as we can do in an hour, let's make it happen. Yeah, no small (laughs) task, right? We're going to do that. And um, let's just get right into it. I love this. You say freedom is a skill, not a pill. Once you've trained your body and mind how to do it, it will begin to happen all by itself when you continue to enjoy all the other bits of your life. That's a mouthful. I love the quote, freedom is a skill, not a pill. That That's epic right there. So please break this down for us. Give us a synopsis of what this means. So it, you got to remember this came out. This comes out of the context of my life. I was struggling 18 years inside of an addictive behavior. I was struggling with bipolar mood swings, massively manically up and then down for months. I was suicidal for a long period of time. And at the time, freedom for me as a definition meant to have all the bad stuff in my life go away and have only the good stuff remain. And I thought it would come in some sort of miraculous healing event. Jesus was going to come down and make it happen and or some something like that. And the more I chased the sort of like freedom being a pill that I take or an experience I have or something, the more angsty I got, the more frustrated I got, the more lows there were because I was constantly seeking outside of myself for the thing that can only be produced on the inside. So I started looking at, well, what if all of the wisdom I was getting and all the programs I was doing, what if, what if they're missing some key component? And as I started looking inward at some basic things at the bottom of it, which I'm sure that you'll have a ton of questions about, um, as I started looking inward, it started to become patently obvious that freedom is a, a state of being that is just trained, just like I've trained myself to be depressive uh, or suicidal by thinking about the world a certain way and reacting to it a certain way, I can train myself to be free and happy and have health and well-being on autopilot. But I first got to go to the dojo of delight and take lessons there instead of the, you know, the mountains of misery. Wow, that's a big statement that we train ourselves to be depressed and or suicidal. Say more about that. I don't, I don't know that I've ever heard it, heard it quite phrased that way before. Yeah. And this isn't an an indictment in anyone, right? So the, if you think about it, babies are, they come out of the womb and they're not inherently one way or another. They're not suicidal. They're not depressed. They're not anxious. They're experiencing a lot of chemistry going through their system. They're having involuntary muscle spasms that are going every which way. And in the middle of that, they start to form some sense of identity that, that builds over the course of years, continuing on into adulthood and seems to be around age seven or eight or some formative years where they can start to think about a self in a bigger way, unless they've had big traumas, which happens earlier. And so this habit of feeling miserable didn't start at birth, which means it was learned. Now, it, maybe it was learned accidentally, and so, but it was still trained, meaning the neurons, the nerves inside of your body, all the billions of them that are there, they didn't operate that way. And then at some point they started to. What that means is if you're feeling depressed, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling suicidal, everything is right. Your body can learn. Your mind can learn. There's, if you're feeling that way, that means there's nothing wrong with you. Your system is ready to learn. It's just that it learned one thing and all we have to do is give it the skills to to do something else. And so it can learn. We just got to give it another option. So that's what I mean by it's learned. It's not that people 
I certainly didn't go like, you know what? I want to be suicidal when I'm in my 30s. Can I, can I do that one? <laughs> it just sort of happened because step by step, I had built a muscle memory for responding to the world and the way I thought about myself and the way I thought about myself in relationship with other people in a way that was constantly pouring negativity in my system to the point where my body was like, you know what? Maybe we should consider an eject button. That was something I had trained and only training the opposite was the thing that got me, that allowed all those problems to go away on their own just because I built a body memory of freedom instead. Did you have to unlearn all those depressive and suicidal thoughts or did you supersede them with thoughts of freedom? And I'm sure we'll get into what your techniques are, but yeah. but is it a situation where you have to erase and then re-record or can they coexist peacefully? I think they can coexist peacefully. There's not a problem with it. Like for instance, if I grabbed you, Julie, and I rolled you up in your rug and you loved it, you wouldn't have a problem. You wouldn't feel stuck. The moment that you wanted out of it is the moment that you would start to feel some negativity. And if that's your only option is to just sit there and feel negative, then that's your only option. As soon as we give you another option and show you how to wiggle your shoulders or ears and, and neck and stuff so that you get free, now you have another option. That doesn't mean that you have to get rid of the first option. The first option has, for everybody listening, the way that you've managed to survive so far has a 100% success rate. That's significant. <laughs> you have managed to, to swing at every curveball, and whether you missed it and struck out or whether you hit it, you survived the whole game. And so like the old patterns, instead of vilifying them as like, this is something I don't want in my life. This is something that's bad. It's not bad. It saved your life. It's just that maybe we want to give yourself some more options. When given a better option, the body naturally chooses the one that feels the best. And so it's a question of just giving the body more options rather than sitting there going, no, that's bad. No, that's bad. We got to take this away. I tried that for a long time, but just made me feel like I was in prison most of the time. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I love that. I never thought of it that way, but at least the way that you stated it of everything in our lives that's led us to where we are now that we have a 100% success rate because we're here. We're alive yeah. and we're here to tell the stories. So I love that, Bob. Wow. Look at you right out of the chute. So brilliant. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> You brilliant. It took me like 20 years to figure that out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm acting like a fangirl here, but this is some <laughs> profound stuff right out of the gate you're giving us here. You help people get rid of the root cause of stress, anxiety, depression, addiction, trauma, abuse, and pain. How do you do that? Yeah, that was... When I first started, I was just trying to get rid of behaviors. And then there came this like, well, obviously the behavior is trying to solve something. So the behavior is not the problem. It's a solution. So what's the problem? And that led me on this hunt for a root issue or a root problem. And the common way that I started looking for it was, is what a lot of people look for it is a, a belief about the world. And the way that people commonly talk about it is that something happens in the world and we first have a thought and then we have a feeling and then that feeling then creates a behavior. And so I, I bought into that for a long time, this idea that if I go back and I chase down these thoughts that I have about the way that I see the world and stuff, and I dismantle them, then the feelings will stop coming and then the behaviors will stop coming. And that is true to a certain extent. But what I didn't realize was that my thoughts are built on something. They don't just happen at random. They happen in response to something. And what is that? So as I started like, pecking at the issue <laughs> a bit at a time and challenging everything I could because what I wanted was freedom on autopilot. I didn't want to have to willpower, spend every day trying to break down thoughts and all the other stuff. I started questioning, do thoughts actually come first? And this is where there was a massive departure from, from the sort of mainstream way of looking at things. As I looked at it, I realized the environment, something happens in the environment, whether internally or externally. And when that happens, the environment comes and in, in my body interacts with it in some way and has an immediate response, like an instinct. You know, sun rises, melatonin production goes on, the dog farts in the room, everybody clears the area, you know, like there's an immediate response. 
And that response is what my brain is in touch with. So my brain is not in touch with the outside world. It's in touch with the data that has come from the outside world through my body. But then the question became, well, what is the state of my body? Because if my body is in this beautifully at ease place, then what comes from the outside is coming through the lens of beauty and ease and peace. But if my body is in this place of discomfort and tension and poor breathing patterns and poor nutrition and some of these other things, then it doesn't matter how good the outside world is on the inside. All that, out, all that beauty on the outside is coming through the minefield of my inner states of discomfort, what I call in the book, in my book, angustia. And then that's the message my brain gets. Look at all this trouble. It's like driving down the road uh, with a muddy windshield. You know, how much mud on the windshield is going to change the amount of stress you have in the, on, <laughs> on, the, on the road. But you clean the windshield, it's not a stressful drive at all. You're just, you can see fine, change lanes, whatever it is. And it's cleaning that gunk from the inside of my body's windshield, so to speak, that starts to change my body's instinctive reaction to it. Now, what that means is the thoughts that I have, instead of reacting to, oh, there's mud on the windshield, there's all these, all these problems, I'm going to run into something, there's no mud. So my thoughts change because my body changed. So when I started really addressing that, my body's instinctive, almost subconscious reaction to life events, I started giving it other options, different ways to breathe, how to stand, how to move. Then it started to realize it didn't have to just do the one thing. It could do any number of other things. It stopped reacting to life in ways that were miserable. And what I noticed was all those thoughts that used to recur, they started going away on their own. And I didn't have to address them. The only thing I had to do was learn how to bring my body to ease every day. And in a moment when I was in distress, how do I return it back to ease? And that starts to retrain the nervous system in such a way that it prefers that over the misery that was there before. So basically what you're saying is by retraining your body to stay out of fight or flight, then that keeps clarity in your brain and you realize that you have other options. That's my take on what you just said. Does that yeah. make sense to you? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great way of, of stating it. I would say fight or flight itself is not bad. I mean, your body's designed to do that, but only when you're actually in danger, not when you think you are. Right. And so training your body to actually get right. past all of the assumptions and staying in this open space is, is really the key. And then when you need to fight or flee, you can do that. Right. Yeah, we do. But unfortunately, a lot of us are in fight or flight all day long because yeah. we're just so stressed. And and yeah. if you're late for a meeting, it doesn't mean the same thing as if you have a tiger chasing you through the jungle. <laughs> but that's <laughs> what our body is receiving, yeah. right, from our brain because our brain has lost clarity because mm -hmm. the blood's gone to our our extremities and our hearts so we can run away from that appointment for, from which we're going to be late. Yeah. And it feels the same as if we're being chased. So how do you break that? How do you, how do you train people with whom you work on how to stay out of the fight or flight, the stress and anxiety, automatic response when they get triggered? So, um, so what I, I mean, this is where my story went like way off the deep end. And I ended up training with like Russian operatives and, you know, all of these other people chasing gurus to the Himalayas and masters in China and all these different places to try and figure out how do I, how do I tap into this much bigger, like intelligence in the body that's operating on its own, instead of sitting there trying to control everything with just my mind. And it was interesting. One day I was, I was training with, with, Vlad, with Vladimir and some of his, his teachers. And at one point in time, he had told a story about how he had been caught by a German spy. Yes, this is relevant to your happiness, folks. <laughs> He'd been caught by a German spy. And uh, like they were, ha they were having a duke it out session in the middle of his, his, his service to his country, Mother Russia. And uh, he was telling everybody in the room, you know, that he, you know, he got behind him with a wire and he started to choke him. And so everybody's in the room on like pins and needles. Like, well, what happened? What happened? We're waiting for some great escape story. And he's like, he choked me out. And everybody's like, um, okay, that was a little bit of a downer. And then we all start to turn 
And then he looks at everybody and he's like, no, you don't understand. While I was unconscious, I broke his arm and escaped. And we all went, what? You can train yourself to fight unconscious? And that, like that seed of an idea was like, oh, so it's not unconscious. It's just other conscious. And if that's the possibility, wait, what if I can train this stuff that way? So that means I've got to somehow bring it to the surface in a conscious way. I've got to develop these sort of muscle memory or these skill sets. And so what I use at the retreats that we run and whatnot is a whole host of things, a series of experiences that sort of stack on each other. And when I have people working at home, what I'm having them do is I'm engaging them with the main, the main things that they can measure in their life. How are you breathing? How are you, how tense are you and where? How are you standing? How are you moving? You know, how, what is your vision like? You know, is it tunnel vision and focused or are you panoramic and relaxed and seeing the whole room? You know, all of those things are things that people can measure. So we can break it down and go, okay, you're anxious. How, what does that mean to say that you're feeling anxiety? Most people don't know. They think it's this cloud that attacks them from the outside and they have this feeling. But if you get them to start to really get granular on it, are your kneecaps anxious? Your big toes, your bum cheeks, your earlobes, are those suffering anxiety or are they just hanging out in the wings? And when we get people really understanding what's happening, it's a certain amount of tension and a certain breathing pattern and a certain way they're holding themselves and how they're darting about the room. And if we can get them to change that, their brain starts to realize that when they go to that place, that's not the end of the ride. They're not stuck there. They can actually transfer out of that place into another one. So one of the things that I did early on was on my way to work, I was driving. <laughs> I would just time it for a minute at each step. And I would make loud noises for a minute, big size, because you're not allowed to make loud noises at, in, in the world at large. So I just big size. And then and this next minute I would make like chittering noises. And the next minute I would make all of these gobbledygook sounds. And I was just trying to warm up my body, get some, some fluid moving so that I could get to the end of the exercise. And the end of the exercise was for one minute, I would get my facial expression into whatever expression it was where I was practicing emotional states. And I would go there as fully as I could. I would go to anxiety and I would feel anxiety. And then I would go, okay, next one is excitement. And I would go until I felt excited. And I'd have to think about things sometimes. And I'd have to do, you know, whatever I had to do to get myself to excitement. And then from excitement, I'd have to go to curiosity. And from curiosity, I'd have to go to mischievous. And from mischievous, I'd go to depressed. And depressed, I'd have to go to like ecstatic and inspired. And so I practiced transitioning between them all, just on my drive to work. I'm sure the people in the crosswalks thought I was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> God, who is this nut job? Yeah. Stay on the sidewalk, right? Yes, stay on the sidewalk. So, but the end result was that my body, not just my brain, my body learned that it didn't matter where I went emotionally, it could shift anywhere else it wanted which meant that emotion was now not an accident, not a catastrophe, but an adventure. I could go wherever I wanted. And when you're no longer afraid of being angry or being sad or being depressed or being anxious or being suicidal even, when you're no longer afraid of that place because you know you can come out anytime you want, there's a totally different freedom that opens up inside of you in life. You can engage with things that you thought were hard before. You can handle things that you don't react to them the same way because your body already knows I, half of the reason that people are afraid of anxiety is because they don't know if they can get out of it. But if you're anxious for a moment, what happened to me, it happened mm, six, eight months ago, I had a panic attack. I had not eaten any food for a bit. I had worked out way too hard in the morning and my body was in this like tremble space. And then we were running a retreat the next day. So I was like trying to mentally tax my brain to get some things in order. And in the middle of that, my whole system went into to panic mode and the sense of impending doom hit and I'm going to die and I'm going to be left here and all. And in that space, within about 30 seconds, I watched my body take over and do some breathing that I had trained, <laughs> do some body movements, do some relaxation, do some breath holds, walk over to the piano. Like I walked over to the piano and just like did some singing to kind of control the breathing. Within like three, four minutes, I was out of a panic attack that normally would have just left me devastated for a while. And I 
wasn't consciously trying anymore. My body already knew how to get out of it. So, so I was just on the ride going like, cool. I don't even have to worry about panic attacks. Okay. Let's unpack some of this. You, you, got, <laughs> you got my curiosity picked here with this Russian guy. Box. And I'm thinking, okay, so he broke the guy's arm and escaped while he was unconscious because he didn't have enough breath. And you hear these stories and it's usually somebody pulled you back off the curb so the car didn't hit you or, or yeah. somebody had Herculean strength to lift the car yeah. off of the child that had the car had rolled on top of or something along those lines. And I go to that everything is possible, especially if we're coming from a spirit standpoint. Okay. And the other thing that's interesting to me about these stories that you've just mentioned too, Bob, is you think what my experience is the body's inside the spirit. The spirit's the everlasting part of us. The body's inside the spirit and it's all holographic. So the spirit has wisdom, has abilities, has things that our human bodies don't necessarily have, supposedly. And I'm wondering how much of a correlation there is there. Is that, was that that Russian operative's spirit? running his body at that time to get him out of there to save his life. What do you think along those lines? And, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking, okay, there's a spiritual component here. What is it? How does it work? So the Russians actually, I mean, they're the, the traditions that I've trained in are, are, I mean, and I've trained in a lot of different martial arts and whatnot. What I, what I thought beautiful about the Russians is one, I didn't have to have a different cultural understanding of reality. So I didn't have to think in terms of chi and prana and stuff like that, like I had to when I was studying with Kung Fu and some of the Indian systems and whatnot. The Russian system, like they, they is high, is heavily influenced by the Orthodox faith. And so <laughs> they'll discuss this notion of spirit and, and they'll discuss the psyche as a level of mind, you know, mind, emotional stuff. And then they'll discuss the body. They, in the training itself, they're not sitting there saying like, okay, well, now it's your spirit running things. Um, they, they don't discuss it that way at all, you know, because they're trying to like figure out in terms of physi ph physiological skill sets. But, and, and there, there are some practitioners that are like atheists and they're trying to describe it in terms of consciousness and all of the neuroscience language. I think there's a lot of different ways that language can get at it. But there is clearly, I think what, what Ryabko, who just passed this April, um, but he was the sort of founder and head of the, of the training system, he said at one point in time, we were running with our breath held, you know, for like, you know, 15 steps, you know, at a full sprint. And then how many pushups can you do while your breath is held and all these other things. And then when we were done, he had us lay on the floor. And the closest language I've ever heard anybody talk in this way inside of a training scenario was like, can you feel your heart beat in your big toe and your little toe? Can you feel it in all your capillaries? And we're sitting here tracing this and through our system. And he's like, when you can feel your heartbeat through your whole body at once, you will have access to a different kind of power. And that's as much as, as close as we've, we've gotten in terms of language using the word spirit. They'll say strong in spirit, like you're really strong in, in will or spirit or something like that. But in terms of accessing a different kind of power, that's the closest language I've heard. I think that like, that's a way to look at it, that there is, that there is a possibility with human life that gets limited by the way that we conceive of ourselves, by our mental state and by our physical training. And that to reach that other unlimited place, we kind of have to bypass the physicality and the mental stuff. And so a lot of times when I read these stories, there are people that are in such dire straits that they can no longer continue to operate the way that they have been. Their body has failed and they're in some disease state. And so then they start to have visions or they start to have other things start to show up or their mind can no longer process the world as it is, or they're on a psychedelic kind of experience. And so now all of a sudden something else starts to show up and they start to see that reality is perhaps bigger than what they are. And what I love about the sort of Russian system is that instead of waiting until you're decrepit or sick or, you know, confused or lost in life, we can actually start to train these skills without having to be in dire straits. You know, we can just train them by consistent practice and whatnot. None of them 
really address the psych- the psychological well-being and the and the emotional states. Uh, most of this was combative training, and it took a lot of time for me to like really peel off the layers and go, how does this link to all the other problems I was having? Fascinating. I I go back to that. You mentioned several different modalities of defending yourself, I guess, or of, I I don't, I'm short of calling it warfare, but certainly the, you know, the martial arts and the, whatever the Russian, what do they call the Russian system? They call it the Uh, Russian system. (laughs) The Russian system. Hmm, Must be psychic or something. Uh, And, and, you know, and all of that, it's all the same thing. Spirit, chi, energy, it's all the same thing when yeah. at the end of the day, and they're all talking about the same thing. And it's fascinating to me too, Bob, at the end of life, 90% of people, university-based research shows that 90% of people see the spirits of deceased loved ones and pets mm-hmm. yep. as they're transitioning, you know, as they're nearing death. And it's a comforting thing. And it's, they have one foot in the spirit world, one foot in our human existence. And what these guys, these martial arts and these Russian guys, and I'm sure most cultures have some yeah. similar type of methodology, what they're doing is they're harnessing that power of the spirit to help them do what we would consider to be miraculous or Herculean tasks that otherwise, and it, and it, is that what's happening when somebody lifts a car off of a child or yeah, when I mean, somebody? Yeah. Great question. I think it's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I've never lifted a car off a child, so I can't speak from inner experience. <laughs> yeah. But you've but, done some other things that, that I'm sure you thought, holy Moses, this is yeah. amazing that I was able to do this. And I would bet to guess too, that you didn't necessarily remember all of the, bits and pieces of doing it. It's almost like you went into an autopilot when you yeah, were doing it, it. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, or a flow state or whatever you want to call flow it, state. you know, where it's just like yeah. happening. Um, there, yeah. I mean, what's possible for humans is something that I've just been geeking out on since I was a little kid. And I just got yeah. stuck in this belief for myself that I didn't belong or that there was something fundamentally wrong with the nature of my being. And we moved around a lot as a kid. And so like, I was always an outsider, or so it felt like, you know, so even if I had friends, I still had this notion of being an outsider, and then we'd move again and again and again. So the feeling of not belonging, the feeling of having something wrong with me was something that I kind of got sidetracked in for a long period of time. And I was actually seeking how to do these miraculous things. Um, as a way of like proving that I was worth something. So I'm like, oh, can I shoot lightning bolts out of my fingers? I mean, I know it's a Sith thing, but what if it could be done for good instead of evil? <laughs> and can I do it? And so I was chasing that. And then one day I remember I was in my office in Arizona and I, my, I was running a Kung Fu school at the time. And so the classes were in the evening. So it was in the afternoon and I was sitting there researching some of this stuff. And then I was just frustrated because I was really down and depressed at the time. And I had this vision of myself as Superman, but not like the 1980s or 1990s version of Superman with the, like the bright blue outfit and the really, you know, he's really calm and cool and collect, but it's more like the newer version of Superman who's all angsty and the dark blue suit and he doesn't fit in the world and, and doesn't really have friends and Batman hates him and, you know, that version of Superman. And I, I had this clear vision of myself doing all these things in this darkness and I, the thought hit me, wow, it doesn't matter if I can walk on all the water in the world and shoot laser beams out of my eyeballs. If I'm unhappy, I'm just going to be super unhappy. And so that day was when I was like, the superpower that I think is the most important one is happiness on autopilot as a default method. Because if that happens, then it doesn't matter what else happens. I'll be happy. And so that's where most of my, that's where all my focus went after that point. Well, and that makes me think, if we have the ability to harness that kind of power as humans and you've got the happy and then you've got the the depressed or deranged mm-hmm. or whatever, is that perhaps what's going on with people who are doing heinous crimes like the mass murderers and the and those kind of people? Have they are they 
harnessing that power, but they're depressed or they're obviously mentally ill and there's, but they're still able to harness that power to do things that law enforcement is saying, how in the heck were they able to pull all that off? Yeah, it's, it's entirely possible. I mean, if yeah. we just say that I never that thought power about it that is, way before. If we just say that that power is life, you know, and the deeper that gets expressed, it's still getting expressed through the way that you are. So when a lot of people are like, I love you, you know, I've, I had to question what love was. And I was like, I don't know when I experience it, it's, it's just a state that I'm in. I don't know how to put that state on somebody else. So to say, I love you is hard for me to make sense of, because when I feel that I smear it on everything. And when I feel hatred, I smear that on everything. And so like, that's what I feel like is happening is that the state that I'm in is what gets expressed in the world. And so these people are expressing some state of misery and a desire for power and hatred at such levels that they're able to do things that, that we might look at and go, holy cow, how are they surviving or how are they accomplishing this stuff? But it's just because of the drive and desire that's inside of them. Thoughts create our reality, right? We hear that all the time. Most of us have busy lives and we know that we're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins and the minerals that we need. So I'm always looking for easy ways to ingest them. I found one, it's called Beam Minerals. And what I find is that most of us don't get enough potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Those are the big three. And so what Beam Minerals does is it's put all these minerals in a liquid form that's easy to drink because it tastes like water. It's got all these important minerals and a whole bunch of other ones. And I find that they're really helpful. They save me time. They're easy to take. And I suggest that you give them a try. Go to Beam Minerals. B as in boy, E-A-M, minerals, plural, dot com, and use the code Julie Ryan, altogether, no space, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your order. That's Beam Minerals, B-E-A-M, minerals, dot com, and use Julie Ryan at checkout, and you'll get a 20% discount. Give it a try and let me know what you think. I work with a lot of people who have chronic pain. And they've been to doctor after doctor after doctor and gotten different diagnoses and in some instances, different treatment plans and none of it are working. And I know that you've had great success in helping people get rid of their chronic pain. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works and how it works within your system? Yeah. So it kind of works the same, actually. Um, pain the first thing that I had to do was when I was looking at pain, I, it was accidental that I started helping people with chronic pain. Um, I didn't realize that that was happening because I was focusing on their emotional states and I was still learning how these body mind things were all connected and I was still trying to piece together how they were stitched together. But um, what I had to learn first was that pain is not inherent in the tissues of the body. It doesn't, you don't feel pain because your tissues are in a certain state. The only thing that gets sent to the brain is a certain nerve is firing at a certain intensity in a certain location. So it's really only sending a couple bits of info to the brain. And then the brain is doing the rest of it. So all the leading researchers, people like Lorimer Mosley and, and some of the other ones who are talking about pain, that they're looking at this and they say all of the research shows that 100% of the time, pain is an opinion of your brain about something going on in the body. That it's always a top-down solution. Now, it's a smart solution because if you have something going on in the body, pain is a great motivator. It's a, the brain's like, well, we got to get out of here. What's the fastest thing we could do? Poke them with a needle. <laughs> and then we, then we move. So pain's a great motivator. It's a great teaching tool. And, and so most of us learn through pain, unfortunately. It's not the only way to learn, but it is a way to learn. So with, um, with pain itself, when someone's having chronic pain, here's what happens. Something started somewhere. And it was big enough and bold enough that there was a reaction. It was like, oh, this is bad. This is not okay. And then the nociceptors that are around that area that work a little bit differently than the main, than the main um, you know, 
sensory nerves and stuff. They're around that area. They're just kind of like low level. They're like the milling crowd on the street, right? And then a siren, uh, an ambulance goes by and they're like, whoa, and then they, they start to look, right? And they get involved in it. And so maybe with this one, there, it was like a riot went by and people were coming through and then the mob sort of joins in and they're like, we're rioting. I don't even know what we're rioting about. Down with the king, you know? And they're running through the streets with their picket signs. All the nerves are then like, they're just tingling and they're pushing side to side and they're, they're and all of that stuff is, is heading up to the brain. And the brain's like, there must be a big conflagration going on down there. We need to move it. And so it starts to create this pain response. When it happens over time, those nociceptors become less precise. They don't even remember why they're rioting. And so it just picks up this wave and then the whole body is rioting for no reason at all. Uh, just because it's used to rioting. And so then the person inside starts to feel like, oh my gosh, there's just this problem here. They don't know what to do with it, but now their brain's like, there's pain. And then they start to coddle the pain. So then more pain comes and it becomes this self-perpetuating um, cycle. So I had a, a client named Amber who came to me. She had given up trying to get rid of her pain. So she was, she was like mo mostly interested in like emotional support, helping her figure out how to get past some of the blocks that were where she was struggling with when she was doing being a business owner and trying to do that stuff. And I saw her, I met her at a mastermind. She was on the back porch. She looked like she was having a hard time. So I, I just went up and I was like, Hey, what's going on? Are you okay? And you know, I could see some things starting to build up in her shoulders and her back. So I just started, I asked her if I could do a little bit of, you know, physical work on there to see if we could release it. She starts talking about stuff that started going on in her childhood and, and the way that things started to happen then. And then we go on a little bit of a walk across the lawn and then I see it all build up in this big ball in the center of her back. And so I just like, I asked her, Hey, you mind if I just, you know, do something real quick to see if we can help move this. She's like, sure. So she breathes in, I have her breathe in and breathe out and I give her a good thump in the middle of the back. And then I have her do it again and I give it a little harder and then a third time and a really good solid thump. And it just sends this pulse of energy through the system. Now what's happening at a cellular level? <laughs> her cells at first were rioting, which she describes as having razor blades going up and down her bones every hour of the day. She describes her pain as something that would leave her like crawling across the floor in her home to, to be with her kids because she couldn't bear to walk. Like it was like really debilitating for a long time, had led to an opioid addiction that she just by willpower got out of because she didn't want to be an addict as well. And she'd just given up. So inside of that space where there's a riot going on all the time and she's trying to build a business and be a good advocate for people's health and well-being, inside that space, there's that riot and in comes this big honking explosion of sensation through the middle of her back. All of them are like, what just happened? Her whole body is now, forget the riot. I don't even know why we were rioting. Focus all forward firepower on the weirdo with the beardo. <laughs> so she turns around thinking that I had broken her back or something, which was not going to be happening. I didn't hit her that hard. And, and I told her, breathe. So she starts breathing and calm her down a little bit. And then I had to go because my family was, was needing me. And so we sort of parted ways. And then that night she texted me at like one o'clock in the morning. She had been sitting in an armchair for hours, not moving because for the first time in seven years, there was no pain in her body. Wow. All from a couple thumps on the back and a willingness to sit there and help her kind of coach her through like how to breathe her way out of it. Those thumps gave the nervous system new information that it didn't have before. And so much of her time in the past, I mean, she'd spent months in a Mexican hospital getting all kinds of IVs and everything else. She'd tried everything. But most of that was bent on, let me help you feel better. Let's comfort you. And what I did was go straight to the sympathetic nervous system. And I asked it, do you really want to be fighting that guy or would you rather fight me? <laughs> and in that moment, it had a chance to kind of reboot itself and be like, hold on a second. Maybe we're, maybe, maybe we need to do things a little bit differently. And her whole system changed. And I've had it happen multiple times. Somebody with years of pain and they're like, can you, can you just hit me in the back like you did, Amber? I'm like, sure. I don't know if it's going to work every time, but it's happened multiple times where they just show me the spot and we just do a little bit of a hit or I do a little bit of a massage or sometimes I just do a stretch and like things release. And I've had people with, you know, chronic pains go away just because 
We needed to give their nervous system a different way of operating. We needed to train it to respond to life differently. Wow. And then is she still pain-free? How long ago did that happen? That was in, it was four years ago. She's still pain-free. Yeah. Wow. So it's almost like rebooting the neurological system. Yeah. And then my husband always says when my computers don't work, just, honey, just reboot it. I think like, I can't be that easy. And then I reboot <laughs> it and then it works, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or the phone companies. Yeah. Your cycle, you phone. They're like, just turn it off and turn it back on and you'll be fine. Turn it off and turn it back on your router. Just, just reboot it. And I'm thinking. <laughs> but and in a usually, way, that's what's happening. But it usually works. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you find that there's usually an emotional component that's in place at the same time as whatever the physical symptoms are? Here's why I'm asking. When I do energy healings, which is exactly what you're doing when you're saying, okay, I'm seeing this big ball of energy in her back and I know where to go, you're, you're being a medical intuitive. You're intuiting, okay, here's where the block is. We need to clean, clean it up or clear it out. When I'm working with somebody as a medical intuitive and energy healing person, there's always physical things that we work on. But then the most important part of a healing, in my opinion, Bob, is the energy field membrane, which is the container that holds the energy that makes up our body and our spirit. And before any medical condition arises, there's always a tear or a hole in that energy field membrane. And I'll envision myself going into that tear or hole. This is after I've watched stem cell energy regenerate organs and, you know, whatever, heal things spirit working through me and with me. But then the most important part of a healing is the energy field membrane because we can fix body parts all day long. But if you're leaking power, what's the point, mm -hmm. in my opinion? And I'll go into that tear or hole, Bob, and I'll be shown a scene of something that's happened. It may be that somebody called this person a bad name when they were little and it hurt their feelings. And they think as an adult, well, that's no big deal. Well, it's a big deal to your three-year-old little self when that happens. Or it may be something dramatic. Doesn't matter what it was. What I find is as soon as we illuminate whatever that was, whatever that event was in this life or a past life that caused that energy block, which initially looks like a little kernel of unpopped popcorn to me, and then other life events, emotions pile on top of it, eventually causing enough pressure causes a blowout in the membrane. Once we illuminate, where did it originate? I'm not going for the most dramatic thing. I'm going for where did it originate? It eradicates that origin of the block. All the rest of it gets removed. Energy filled membrane is healed. Body goes back to working on full power, helps body heal, helps body maintain health. In 30 years of doing this, I've never seen the energy field membrane re-rupture after it's been healed. I'm not saying it can't. I'm just saying I've never seen it. So I think there's a really good chance that it won't. But I'm interested in what you found with your clients and, you, and people who have attended your retreats and all the people with whom you've worked over these years. Do you find that there's always or most of the time an emotional component there? Yeah, and I th I think it's important to recognize that there is, there are sometimes scenes and memories are tied with them, and sometimes it's purely nonverbal emotional content that isn't really tied to a memory. It's like the memory is the emotion, especially from early in childhood or or some of these other people. They don't know why they have this feeling show up. There's no thoughts or memories coming up, and we don't actually have to go digging. Because what's presenting yeah. is is in the wisdom of the body. It says, this is what we got to look at. And so that's all we do. I spent um, a number of years, the first book I wrote was around energy healing. And I spent a number of years training in biodynamic craniosacral therapy, some Qigong healing methods, and, and a number of other methods to really look at what people are describing as an energy anatomy of the body from a variety of different systems. And <clears throat> what I found helpful for the way that I work with most people is to give them something that they can actually measure. So I'm not particularly talking to them about energy membranes or anything like that, because that's not something that most of them even have a capacity to know about, feel, measure, or anything like that. And so 
what I'm talking to them about are specifically like sensations in their body and nerves firing. And I'm trying to give them a language for it that that matches the most practical approach that I can come up with. But that doesn't mean there isn't a lot more going on. How much does the person's intuition come into play? And do you find that a lot of the time it's there, but we just don't pay attention to it? Oh, I think that's a beautifully worded question, Julie. <laughs> it's there all the time. And it's the attention that we haven't been given to it. I mean, we're trained in school to pay attention only to logic and reason. And But when I'm having people learn, what am I having them do? I'm getting them back in touch with their own sense of life. And I'm having them learn to trust that. And when it becomes uncomfortable to trust it, oh, wow, I'm feeling a little discomfort. Let me respond to that and alleviate it instead of, no, no, I'm good. I've got this deadline. I know. I know I'm stressed. I know I'm this. I, I just got to get through this. That's the way we do it. That's the way we've been trained to do it. Productivity over everything. When their entire body is screaming at them going, stop, just, I need a five minute break is all. And we don't give it and we don't give it. And then pretty soon they get to the other side of the tracks and they blow up and their body, and so their body has to scream at them before they'll listen. We're just telling telling them to back off. And I'm just trying to get them to feel their body's whispers so it no longer has to scream. And I would call that intuition in a big way. I agree. Yeah, I agree. What part does nutrition play in the healing process? And do you believe everything can be healed? I don't believe anything is broken. One. Uh, Interesting. One of the big things I wanted people to get out of the book was to get to the end of it and go like, well, maybe there's nothing wrong with me. Maybe there are circumstances I want to change, but that's not something that, that is broken. It's just something that is happening. And if I want it to happen differently, I can, or I can enjoy it as is. So I, I don't really feel I'm not pushing people toward healing. I'm pushing people toward enjoying their life, um, which is a slightly different approach um, in some ways. And so can everything be changed? I don't know. Like circumstances depend on a lot of variables. Um, I'm always open to the possibility that anything can be, can change, but I haven't seen it all change. So I can't speak to like firsthand experience of, of all of it changing. But some of the things I have changed in my mind, when I, when I tell people, I'm like, look, as long as you're willing, we'll get some things to happen. I don't know what they'll be. I don't know if it'll exactly match what you're after, but we can, we can make a really big difference really readily. As far as um, nutrition is concerned, it's huge. I mean, just biochemically alone, the state that your gut is in and your colon is in and, and all the stuff is going on in there, you know, 90% of your serotonin is produced in your gut. DMT is produced in your gut as well as in your brain. You've got dopamine and acetylcholine and all of these other neurotransmitters that are produced in your gut. And when you start to adjust the nutrition. It's, it's amazing. Like sometimes people I think are surprised. And I think I still surprise myself to think, what if I didn't have an emotional issue? What if I just had a food issue? Um, so I, I start the, I start people just by having a green smoothie. I'm like, look, just put some good stuff in the morning. Like let's, let's work on your nutrition by crowding out the bad instead of trying to restrict stuff. Let's just put some more good stuff in that tastes good and it's yummy and we'll see if we can crowd it out. And that's how I usually start people with it. But recently I, I did a 13 day water fast and I was in the middle of it just in these absolute states of clarity and total bliss and just really calm and whatnot. And then when I came out of it and I, I was testing out foods and I, I had some chocolate Now I had some chocolate and I watched the roller coaster happen with the chocolate. <laughs> and then I had some pizza and I watched the roller coaster happen with the pizza. And then I, you know, I tried, you know, something else and I watched that roller coaster and then I tried a, like a green smoothie and I watched that. And I'm just sitting here going like this whole time, I haven't had concrete as much concrete evidence as this experience right now of just how much most of the emotional states that I've been in might have been influenced by my nutrition and not so much by something wrong with me psychologically. Just, I put this in and that came out. I even tested out, let me see what happens if I binge a bunch of chocolate. Let me just see. 
So I binged a bunch and man, I had like a moment of like, what's the point of life show up? And I was like, okay, apparently my system is not really good with chocolate. <laughs> and so, but I got to see that whole roller coaster happen and go like, wow, I could really play with the extremes depending on what I put in my mouth. Roller coaster being glucose roller coaster, your blood sugars like up and down and all over the place. Yeah, yeah, glucose yeah. and whatever else is is any like caffeine is a stimulant inside of chocolate as well, and so there's some other stuff that is there, not just glucose, but yeah, glucose is a big one. Yeah, mold, chocolate, a lot of chocolate's moldy, and that can it's cause all kinds of problems too. With that, interesting. What's the choose your own emotion technique? So choose your own emotion is a program that I, I created a while back. It's like a simple online program. It's like a 20 day adventure for, Hey, how do we start to master our emotional states in the shortest possible way with, by having as much fun as possible. So I kind of built it like a video game where I'm like, okay, you're on level one and then you go to level two. It's not, it's not lesson one, it's level one, <laughs> level two. And the first week I am teaching people how to manage their their overall state, their mood. So I give them, I show them some simple breathing techniques uh, to do. And then I give them a basic thing, a basic way to start out their day. So a morning routine and an evening routine. So that if you're going to bed a little bit better and then you're waking up a little bit better and we do that consistently, all of a sudden your overall baseline of life starts to rise. Then the second week I take them through emotional ninjutsu where I'm teaching them how to in the moment when things start to go haywire, how do you take, okay, I'm feeling depressed right now. Okay, cool. Where am I feeling it? What's going on in my body? What parts of my body? How am I breathing? How am I standing? How am I, what are the tensions in my system? And then having them learn how to change it and release it so that they get to a place where they can clear out a negative emotion when they happen. And then the third week, I teach them the delete button, which is a method for taking traumatic memories and pet peeves and worries and concerns and getting rid of the emotional baggage from them through a simple sort of visualization. So that that way, over the course of three weeks, they learn how to start to affect their overall mood in the day. They, then they learn how to affect spontaneous random emotions that hit. And then they start to learn how to dismantle triggers or things that when thinking about them automatically start to build up an emotional stuff. Why does your methodology work when talk therapy doesn't, when it comes to emotional, deep-seated emotional things and how they're affecting the body? That's a good question. Um, first off, we got to give credit to talk therapy where it's due, which is it does help some people. You know? But what you, what you can talk about versus what you can feel are two separate categories. And you can talk about far less than you can actually experience. And so what, what I'm trying to give people is a way to access the entirety of the situation and not only the verbal bits. And uh, talk therapy in general and most therapy is rooted in, in this basic idea that, that these things don't go away. Um, there are some, there, there are some clinics around the area. Pe people go in and they, they go see these counselors and therapists and they consider it unethical to get a client's hopes up that they can get over a diagnosis. Now, I know individual therapists that would disagree with that, but according to the, the main sort of umbrella of the counseling industry and the therapy industry and whatnot, the main idea is that when, you, when you're struggling with something, the best you can, these are facts of life that don't go away. You can cope with them. You can manage them. You can manage them really well, but you always kind of have to be on your guard. That's the mentality behind addiction. It's the mentality behind all these other things. I turn them around and I go, one, that's bubkiss. Your diagnosis is just the point on the Disneyland map that says you are here and then you only need it at that point. Then you leave, you're no longer there. <laughs> if you need to go to the Space Mountain ride, then you head that way. If you want to go to the exit, you go to the exit. And so they're useful in only helping you see where you are maybe, but they're not useful as a long-term identity, which unfortunately they become. And people start to treat them as pets. Oh, my ADHD, my depression, my anxiety kicks up. Like it's not a dog. You know, you don't need to take care of it. You, you go live your life well. So 
that in that aspect, there's a big difference in, in sort of mentality behind what I'm, what I'm doing. But then on top of it, the nonverbal stuff, a lot of the deep childhood stuff that people handle, they might have some memories, but a lot of it is just a residual something in their body, some fascial tissue that's one way an energetic zing another way, you know, uh, some pressure on a liver, stuff that's happened that their brain is just sort of like, wow, we're uncomfortable under here. And it might've come from a certain place. And how do you, how do you handle that? I don't know why I'm angry, Bob. Well, if you don't know why, that's great. Then let's just deal with the anger. Instead of having to talk about the thing, let me just, oh, cool. Well, let's just change how you feel. And then you've changed how you feel. So for me, it feels much more direct. And I still do need to help talk with people sometimes about specific events or scenes like you would have seen in some of your energy healings where they'll bring it up and I will work with them to help them see through it and help them realize that what they're seeing is their thoughts about what happened. It's not actually what happened. And when they can see that and they start to see what actually happened, then all of the anxiety and the stress and the, the, the struggle that's come from their thoughts about what happened start to go away. Then they get all the wisdom from the event without having to continue to suffer it. So I, I do have to talk to them sometimes if they've had some big things happen, but so much of it can happen just by retraining your body to prefer happiness <laughs> on its own. Wow. One last question. Can you give everybody listening say three simple steps that they can do to begin to retrain their brains and their bodies to have happiness in their life. Yeah, sure. Let's see if we can give three simple steps that you can do. One, um, <clears throat> recognize that if you're feeling bad, it's just a light on the dashboard. You're driving down the road, the dashboard light goes off. It just tells you, hey, something's going on under the, in the, in the engine, under the hood. Let's take a look. So if you're having a negative emotion, it has nothing to do with what's outside and everything to do with what's inside. You're tense. You're breathing weird. You're in a difficult position. You're not feeling wonderful on the inside. Your body's uncomfortable. And your emotions are an indication of that. So if you can see that, then what you, what you want to do is narrate it. So this is the first tip. If you can narrate it from the standpoint of, oh, I'm feeling depressed right now. And that feels like, oh, my jaw is, is hanging loose and my head's hanging down and my chest is sunk this way and I don't have any energy. And that's kind of what it feels like. Ah, where am I not feeling depressed? Well, I'm not feeling it in the tips of my elbows. They seem to be just fine on their own. And you start to pinpoint it and you can narrate where it is and what it is. The clearer that you are on what actually is going on, the more the solution will become apparent. When you realize I'm tense here, then the solution becomes, well, let me relax that. But when you just go, oh, I'm depressed, that's hard to deal with because what is that? What, can you go to the store and buy a can of depression? You know, you've been not depressed, you know, like. Thankfully, no. <laughs> Thankfully, no, you can't. <laughs> so one, narrate it so that you can get precise about what exactly is going on. Because the more clear you can get about what's going on, the more the solution to your specific situation will make, will make itself manifest. Two, learn to breathe better. You would be surprised how much breathing changes so much in, inside of your experience. The fastest way to change your blood pH outside of thoughts is by breathing. It has a longer lasting effect. You can do simple breathing practices. Wim Hof has popularized some. He has an app that's, that's great. I teach some that are similar in some ways to Wim Hof, along with a number of others that handle anxiety or depression or whatnot. But if you just change your breathing, you would be surprised how much you change your feeling. People often think that they're addicted to a specific substance. But I sometimes want to question, are they addicted to a substance? Are they addicted to a whole mess of things that produce an experience? So the sexual addicts I would work with, and I would, I would ask them, like, how are you breathing when you're having sex? Or the cigarette smokers that can't quit. And I'm like, well, what's the way that you breathe when you take that long drag on a cigarette after breathing really shallow all day long? When you start to breathe in a way that, like, you're, that fully oxygenates your body and slows down the breath, and you're breathing in and out of your nose now instead of through your mouth, physical ailments go away. But so also do a lot of the emotional underpinnings that are, that are just a result of your body being uncomfortable. Your breath can do a lot. So learn to breathe better. Find an app, 
that helps. Or the simplest way I would do it, if you just want to try it from this, is take five really good kind of audible breaths where you breathe in the nose, blow out your mouth. You do that five times. And then hold. If you're depressed, hold on full. If you're if you're anxious, hold on empty. Hold as long as you naturally can. When you feel like you need to breathe, go back to normal. And then rinse and repeat as many times, as many rounds as you want. Just five breaths in that, you'd be surprised how much that changes your state. So learn to breathe better. A third one. So we've talked about narrating. We've talked about learning to breathe better. A third thing that people can do to try and get a hold of and change and retrain their internal nervous system so that their body starts to operate better on autopilot. Here's what I did in the beginning. You got to retrain your perception. So the very beginning when I started doing this was like, I don't know, 12 years ago or something. I put on my phone, what is actually happening? And I meant the question of like, if I were like a security camera or another person, what would I be seeing and hearing and what is actually happening versus what do I think is happening? And I was training myself to get those two apart so that I was not confusing my external reality with my thoughts about it. Because a thought's just a thought. And when you see what's actually happening, it's like finding your keys in your pocket. You run around the house blaming everybody under the sun for taking your keys. And you're in a huff, you're going to be late to your meeting, all of that stuff happens. And then all of a sudden, you you reach around in your pocket and you realize they slid around the side and you find your keys. And in that very moment, this relief washes over you. All of the negative emotion goes away. Maybe a little bit of embarrassment about all the people you, <laughs> you blame for a moment. And then you can move on with your day. Perception of what is real eliminates the notion that what you thought was real is what's happening. It's clear perception that sets you free. And that, that's what the Buddha talked about. He said, when you walk out the door and you step on a snake, you have this reaction because you just stepped on a snake. And then when you look down and realize it's a rope, in that moment, all of your worries and your fears and stuff disappear. And he said, that was the, that's what happened with me. The thing that I thought was myself when I realized it wasn't real, in that moment, all of my depression and my fear and anxiety went away. What he was referring to, in a sense, is and the ability to perceive what's actually there without assuming that what you think is there is it. And so if you can start to train that, the way to train it, I did it on my phone screen at first, but then I have, I have people just put alarms, like every half hour, just have an alarm on your phone go off. and like, what is actually happening in this moment? And just that, just to train your mind to be like, what's actually happening? Yeah. You'd be surprised how many things you miss in oh, the middle yeah. of your emotional Absolutely. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Especially when we're multitasking. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Exactly. Why do you think we incarnate? <laughs> Boy, you want to pin me to the floor with this question. <laughs> I... No, I just, I just want your thoughts on it. I, th I, I think it's a fascinating question. I do too. I have, for the longest time, I, I have sought for what I, at the beginning, called truth. And now what I just, I call like, what's real? You know, what's there? And I've asked myself the question about purpose in life. And the more that I look at it, the, the more that I, I have felt like looking at life from a utilitarian purpose, like it is here for something, has led me personally into a lot of emotional struggles because then I'm trying to live up to something and doing something. But the more when I've looked at it from the standpoint of like, what if life is a purpose unto itself? Like the whole point of being here is to be here and have these experiences just because it has been exceptionally freeing. So people have asked me like, well, what's the purpose of life? I'm like, I mean, on one level, I'd say there's no purpose from the standpoint of like, it's not trying to get anywhere, but here. But, but on another level, I would say like to be this, to do this, to, to have this moment, you know, that, that feels like the purpose of it. I don't know beyond that. Yeah. Great answer. How can people learn more about you and your work? So if you want to, like on our website, the main homepage right now has links to all kinds of stuff. You can get a, a digital copy of my book, Built for Freedom, um, and for like five bucks there, I think, something relatively cheap. Or if you want to go on Amazon and pay 
typical book price, you can do that. There's, there's links to my podcast that people can go and listen to for free. There's a link to the Choose Your Own Emotion course and some of the other courses I've made, as well as a place that you can read up about retreats and even schedule a call with one of the team at thefreedomspecialist.com is a place you can go. All righty, Mr. Bob, what an interesting conversation kind of we were free wheeling it there for a while, but it was it was fun to just kind of explore and see where it went uh, based on a lot of your responses. So they were intriguing and and so insightful. Alrighty, everybody, that's it for this week. Sending you lots of love from Sweet Home Alabama mwah, and from Utah too, where Bob is. We'll see you yeah. next time. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan and like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.